0: as it is found in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 verses 23 through 25, Romans chapter 8 verses 23 through 25, and hear God's word. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we are grateful once again for your word. We acknowledge to you that it is to us the very uh, the very words of life, manna from heaven to sustain us in the inner man, to create and to preserve and to sustain that life of of the soul and one day of the body in the resurrection. Oh Father, as as we consider the glorious grace of hope this morning, we pray that you by your spirit and through the preaching might shed light on your word, illuminating it to us and enabling us to grasp it by faith and even to enjoy and cherish this hope in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after a brief break last week with Dave Chilton in the pulpit, uh, we are prepared now to conclude the paragraph, uh, chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, being its own uh, paragraph, its own statement. We're here at the end, verses 23 through 25, and as we're at the end, let us examine how we got here. Uh, the main or leading statement is found in verse 18, where the apostle says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, he asserts this because of what he just said in verse 17, namely, if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The reason... Uh, that I am able, as a believer, to consider that the sufferings of the present time, which are inevitable, cannot compare with the glories that shall be revealed to me, is because I am a child of God. And if I am a child, then I am an heir. And yes, I will suffer for the present, but sh- I shall also be glorified together with Christ. So verses uh, 17 and 18 obviously go together, as they're linked by the word for. And the picture, when we take those two verses together, is this. Believers are enduring or subjected to sufferings for the present time. That's what Paul says, the sufferings of the present time. I don't consider that they're worthy uh, to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed to us or in us. Nevertheless, I'm considering them. I'm aware of them. I'm suffering for the present And yet Paul is not content to leave the matter there in describing the believer's present experience. He wants to explore further the question of uh, the sufferings of the present time. Why are we as believers made to suffer for the present? Why is it inevitable that we should suffer? And the answer is given in verses 19 through 22, which we considered last time. It is because the creation or the created world in which man now lives... The arena in which he uh, he experiences salvation but also sufferings has been subjected to futility. Verse 20, the created world, the created order has been subjected to futility. That's how Paul describes the sufferings of the present time. The world in which we live is cursed by God ever since... Adam and Eve fell into sin, Genesis chapter 3. It's important to realize that the creation doesn't want to be like this. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That's what Paul says. And all the while, creation, he says, is groaning, longing for its deliverance, verse 19, verses 21 and 22. And so that's the general picture. Man is made to suffer for the present because of the world in which he lives, as the garden was for Adam uh, in the beginning, the arena of blessing, uh, the realm in which he experienced not only the blessing of God, but God himself, communion with God. So uh, man has fallen, now lives in a world that has fallen, and the world becomes for him, uh, in converse fashion, the arena in which he experiences the displeasure of God and the wrath of God. It is the arena of Man's punishment rather than the arena of man's blessing, man considered corporately. And yet, even then, Paul is not content to leave the matter there, though he's helped us a great deal. He helps us to understand the nature of these sufferings, the reason for these sufferings and the way to endure them. But he's still not done. And so uh, he takes the teaching a step further. He's still expounding the thought of verse 18. I don't consider that the sufferings for the present can compare to the glories. That await us. Well, really, thus far, he's described the sufferings for the present, verses 19 through 22, but he wants to press on with the thought. He wants to return to the lot of man, man who is hoping and longing for the glories which shall be revealed in him, the believer. Verses 17 and 18 come back into his mind, and he finishes the thought like this in verse 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The thought is, if you take uh, this as the conclusion of the paragraph, the thought is. Creation is not alone in this, for we, too, are experiencing in ourselves the same things so that the picture he is painting of the sufferings of the present time, is only complete uh, when we realize that as creation is groaning and panting and sighing after something far better, and it will not stop doing so until uh, that which is far better comes, namely a new heavens and a new earth, the believer is doing likewise. The believer is doing the same thing. Not only that, but we also, Paul says, verse 23... Not only is the creation groaning and laboring with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves and on he goes. That's the thought that we're going to consider together this morning. The first thing I would notice are the similarities. The context is uh, not only man, not only the creation, but man as created living within the created realm, interacting with one another. Uh, Under God the first thing we notice therefore are the similarities between the creation and the believer we've already noted the ways in which they are related to one another the ways in which looking at the creation first verses 19 through 22 the fate of the world is tied to the fate of man and that's true in every case it's true in the garden. It's true, after the garden, creation is made to suffer because of the sin of man, but you can't leave the thought there. Creation is also looking for man's deliverance because it knows that at the moment man is delivered, so too will the created world be delivered. The two are tied together in the most intimate way. So that when we think of our own redemption, this is one of the key thoughts of this passage, uh, when we think of salvation in its totality, The plan of God, which has been revealed in Jesus Christ, we cannot limit it to our own salvation, nor even the salvation of the church. But we must consider the renewal of the entire created world, the cosmos. God's plan extends even as far as that. And if you read on to the end of Revelation, that's what you see. Not only the fullness of man's redemption, but the fullness uh, which is described as the new heavens and the new earth. A new world in which man is to occupy as redeemed in full. That is the complete picture. But that hasn't come yet. That is not our present lot. Currently we are both locked in to the sufferings of the present. Both are placed in a position of suffering and futility. Both have been placed uh, by God or subjected by God. To bondage and decay and corruption, not only the world, but man. Man has been subjected by God to futility. He's in the bondage of corruption. How so? Well, to use the categories that Paul uses and has been using, uh, not in the inner man. The inner man is saved, but in the outer man. And we'll later see him describing the deliverance as the deliverance of the body. It's because we're in the body that we are in the same position as the world. The body is subjected to futility. The body is subjected to decay. It's decaying outwardly all the time. We're getting worse all the time. It's sobering, but it's true. And soon these bodies in which we live will decay to the point that uh, they will lie lifeless in the grave. All of us. That's the truth. How did we come about this? Well, we came about it because of God. It wasn't the world that did this. It wasn't we who did it to ourselves. It wasn't Satan who did this to us. They all had a part to play, but ultimately it was God who subjected not only the world, but the body. He subjected the believer himself. He cursed not only the ground, but he cursed Adam and he cursed Eve and all of their seed. It's because we're in the body and the body isn't saved. No, not yet, Paul says. Chapter 8, verse 10. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. Inwardly we're alive, but outwardly, Paul says, he goes so far as to say we're dead already. We're living a kind of living death in the outer man. The body is not yet saved. Not willingly. But because of him who subjected it. And yet not without hope. That can be said at the same time. The creation didn't want to be subjected. And yet it was. And yet not without hope. Because of him who subjected it in hope. There's this hopeful note. There's this hopeful tone. So we find the same language. That's verse 20. About the creation, verse 24, for we were saved in hope. It's the same hopeful note, only as I'll go on to argue, it's far more hopeful for the believer. It's a more intense experience for the believer than it is for the creation. Nevertheless, you notice the same categories. Futility mixed with hope. Believers are subjected to the same futility in the outer man, so they are subject to the same hope. The situation is parallel. We also, verse 23, that's a leading thought. Likewise, we also... What is true of of creation is also true of the believer's experience in the body. But it's not, Paul says, a hopeless experience, not for creation and doubly so for the believer. It's one which is mixed with hope in both cases. And so we find in the case of both the same exact language being used. We find of of creation that he's groaning, if we're to speak of creation like he's a man, which the Bible likes to do. He's groaning, he's eagerly waiting and so forth. That, that same language is used of the believer. And the thought is, well, if the creation is doing this, how much more ought we to be doing it? And indeed, that's how he describes us. He says, look at us. We're groaning. We're sighing. We're panting after something better. We're eagerly waiting for it. We can't wait for it to happen. Just like the creation. So it's the same experience in those broad categories for both. And that's the first point we must grasp if we are to understand Uh, The close of the paragraph or the thought in verses 18 through 25. What's true of the creation is true of the believer, only more so. And we see that both are groaning, sighing, panting after, hoping for the same future reality. Namely, as he puts it in verse 19, speaking of the creation, the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So in verse 23, he says, Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. It's the same point. It's the same terminus. It's the same object of hope. Different ways of expressing the same future reality. And so that's the second point. We must define or locate the great event for which both are longing. And hoping. They're both hoping for the same thing. They're both looking for it. What is it? Well, we should take both expressions together. Verse 19 and verse 23. It's very helpful to do so. Verse 19, the revelation of the sons of God. Verse 23, the redemption, or excuse me, the the adoption, the redemption of our body. Taken together, they explain the same reality, but uh, they they complement each other and they offer a complete picture of the thing which is hoped for by both, it involves a revelation, first of all, verse 19, the revelation of the sons of God. now it 's interesting that he says that he 's not saying this is something that becomes true on that day. we need to understand that he's saying here's something that 's already true, but it isn't generally known. <coughs> it, excuse me <coughs> it, it 's a truth uh it's something that's true already but it's hidden and it needs to be revealed it's it's like a light which is under a basket well the basket needs to be taken away the light shining but it it isn't seen or felt or known in a general way what's the truth well the truth is that we're the sons of god the revealing of the sons of god that was the main thought of the prior paragraph verses 14 through 17. That led up to the new paragraph. The leading thought is that those who are led by the spirit, these are the sons of God. And that's the truth that the spirit is testifying in the believer. He's the spirit of adoption. He's the one who's assuring us in in various ways that we are the sons of God. And that's the thing the believer needs to know about himself. But we could say it's not a truth which is well known. And I would even go so far as to say it is not known to the believer even as well as it might be. There are aspects of our sonship that are still mysterious to us and which are unknown. But what Paul is saying is, and which John says, I'll read that in a moment, First John chapter 3. He's saying there's a day that's coming when it will be well known. It will be revealed in a way that's unmistakable, unmistakable to the world unmistakable to the principalities and the powers that is to Satan and his hosts, unmistakable to the angels, unmistakable even to the believer himself. This is what John says. I think he he states the truth as well as any. He says, beloved, this is first John chapter three, verse two. Now we are the children of God. You see, that's already true. It's true of us now. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When he is revealed, uh, Colossians chapter 3 is another place. Our life is hid with him, but he'll be revealed and we along with him. What's the truth that will be revealed? The truth that will be revealed is that we are the sons of God. Oh, oh, we're, we're sons already. But we're not now as we one day will be. And on that day, the glorious truth that shall be manifest is the truth of our sonships. We shall be revealed in the glory of sons. You see, we're sons now, but we don't know anything of the glory of sons. One day we will. When we share in the glory of the Son of God himself, we shall know the glory of the sons of God. How so? That's the next thought. We come into verse 23. How will we know that, uh, and experience the glory of the sons of God? By the redemption of the body. You see, everything now is inward. It's it's our own consciousness of our sonship. It's the spirit testifying to the inner man that we are the sons of God. Or him enabling us to cry out, Abba, Father. But the body, when it is redeemed, when the body is redeemed, then we shall appear as sons in an outward and a glorious manner. The redemption of our bodies. Verse 23 The body, though it is cursed now, though it is subjected to futility, then it shall be glorified and perfected. The infirmities of the flesh, which we shall consider in the next verse, verse 26, in the following sermon. The infirmities shall end. And our bodies, in our bodies, we will begin to enjoy endless glories along with Christ. The sufferings of the present will give way to the glories of eternity. And it is in that way that we will appear to be what we now are, the very sons of God, conformed not only in the inner man to Christ as now, but in 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 the outer man. We shall have a body like his, Paul tells us, Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. Our bodies will be gloriously transformed and conformed to the glorious body of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And it was in his resurrection, if you think, that Paul says that he was declared to be the son of God with power. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. So, too, will believers in a powerful and glorious way to be be declared in their resurrections to be the sons of God. And thus it is referred, this is the most troubling, if I could put it this way, or the most perplexing thought, it's referred to as, The adoption, the redemption of our body, the revelation of the sons of God is referred to as the adoption. Not in the sense that we will be adopted on that day, but in the sense of what John says. Beloved, we are now the sons of God, but we're not now what we one day shall be. Oh, there's a day coming when we shall be revealed as the sons of God. The revealing of the sons of God, verse 19. In that sense, he's saying it shall be the adoption, the fullness of the blessing." The fullness of the grace of adoption shall that day be known not only to all but to the believer himself. Never again will there be the slightest trace of doubt in the heart of the believer that he is a child of God. You see, you won't need the spirit to assure you anymore on that day or on any day that follows. It will be as clear to you as it possibly can be. You shall be revealed as fully to yourself and to all as what you are. But do you see as well How important the body is in the theology of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle is telling us that we can't really view. Redemption or adoption as complete until it includes the body. That's a kind of challenge to us who are uh, rightly I think preoccupied with the inner man. And yet at the same time we need to recognize that there is hope for the body. Not in this life but in the life to come. But once the body is included then the truths which we now possess by faith come into sight for all to see. That is the hope of the believer that Paul is describing in these verses, which is expressed not only here but also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The thing the believer's groaning for, Paul says, is the redemption of the body. He's in the body, and yet he's groaning because he's in the body. He doesn't want to be out of the body. He wants the body to be redeemed. That's what he's saying. The hope of the believer, if I could put it this strongly, and this is what Paul is saying in both places, both Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 5, the hope of the believer is not merely to be with the Lord. That is not put strongly enough. For being with the Lord might be, it might mean being absent from the body. Well, uh, that's certainly better than the present lot, but it, it is not adequate to express the totality of the believer's hope for which he groans and longs. Uh, What he is groaning after, rather, is that he should possess immortality in the body, not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, to experience redemption in the outer man, even as I've experienced it in the inner man, And, and in that capacity to be present with the Lord, present with him in the body, to enjoy life with God in the body, a body which is glorified and perfected. We don't want to be unclothed. We want to be further clothed. We're groaning. We're longing for a glorified body. And not only that. But to take the teaching in whole, as a whole. We're also groaning. For a glorified world. In which to live and inhabit. And dwell in the presence of God. In these new bodies. A new heavens and a new earth. In new bodies. That and nothing less than that. Is what the earth is the creation and what the believer are looking for and which is expressed as the hope of the believer and of the world. And yet as a third point, we also must notice key differences between the believer and the creation. Not everything is the same. It isn't just as though the believer experiences the same thing in an amplified way. There are actual differences. So it is important to realize that Paul is also Drawing a contrast between the two. And there are two main differences as I see them. First, we see the manner in which the seed of hope was sown in each differs. They are both uh, subject to the same hope, but the manner in which they come to this hope differs. The creation was subjected in hope, but the believer was saved in hope. Do you see the difference? The creation was subjected in hope. The believer was saved in hope. Surely. That is a very great difference. And yet. We notice as we're reading it. The similarity. We see. Subjected in hope. Saved in hope. Clearly there's a similarity. And yet there is this difference. And it's a very great difference. One is cursed. The other is saved. The creation. Becomes aware of hope. Even as it is cursed. Such that. I think we are justified in saying that what Paul is saying is that in the case of the creation, the curse is what dominates. And the hope is more or less secondary. It's subjected, yes, not without hope. But look at it. Look at the creation, this poor creation. It's been subjected. It's been cursed. And buried under there somewhere is this hope. But the believer is saved in hope. And so even though he suffers, you see, the suffering is really the secondary thing here. Even though he suffers for the present, hope is the dominant feature now for the believer. It isn't an afterthought. It isn't secondary. It is the very essence of his salvation, of his experience of salvation. He's been saved in this hope. To be saved is to possess this hope, to be uh, captivated by it. To have it as the very center of one's consciousness. I don't think we can say that of the creation. But we must say it of the believer. And so that's the first difference. How this is a matter not of creation's curse. But of man's salvation from God. But the other important difference has to do with how each comes to possess this hope. Creation does so in its relation to man. It is aware that its fate is tied to that of man. And so it longs for man's deliverance. As its own, and it knows that as long as man is fallen, so it will live in a fallen state. But as soon as man experiences deliverance and redemption, so will it experience its own. And so creation, uh, if you like, is relating to man in all of this. It's relating uh, to the future of man. It's looking for his redemption. But man is made aware of this hope in a different way, not by his association with the creation, but rather by his association with. God himself, and God the Holy Spirit in particular. You see, we don't read that the creation is the first fruits of the Spirit, but we do read that of man. It is because or since, verse 23, we have the first fruits of the Spirit that we have this hope. That this hope is lively and active in the heart of the believer, far more so than, uh, again, to speak in a human way, in the heart of creation. Indeed, the same is not true of creation. You can't say, That creation has been made to hope in the same way or for the same reason. The creation is looking for something it doesn't presently know or enjoy in any measure. But the believer we read and we know by experience is given a foretaste, a kind of first fruits of the future blessing. He's already tasted in part the glories of heaven and that for which he hopes. And it is because he has tasted these things, because he has presently enjoyed them, that he is eagerly looking for the fullness. You see, that's a very great difference. Because he's, he's tasted them, there is this eagerness. He's tasted the heavenly fruit. He knows that it's good. And what is that heavenly fruit? That heavenly fruit is the Spirit himself. It's the Spirit himself who is the foretaste. The first fruits of the future glory. And just as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's the spirit who's the guarantee. It's the same thought. Or the down payment. You've been given, well, you've been given a, a portion, but a small portion in comparison to what's coming to you. What is it? It's the spirit. And in so far as Christ is in you, the Holy Spirit is in you, well then, you've begun to enjoy what one day, you've begun to enjoy and measure what one day you will enjoy without measure. You're already enjoying it. And because you're already enjoying it, well, you're longing for the fullness. That's how Paul describes the believer. That is not how he describes the creation. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Let me read those in full. He says, but you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. I would add as a first fruit or a foretaste. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit is the foretaste. The spirit's the guarantee. It's because the spirit's dwelling in us that we know that the body will be redeemed. But then as a final point, a fourth point, we must consider the disposition which Paul is describing, as it is found in the believer. And it is the disposition of hope. I found uh, two pages in Owen's spiritual mindedness very helpful, where he describes the glorious grace of hope. Uh, So I'm going to offer you quite a few Owen quotes here. The glorious grace of hope. The believer is one who has been saved in hope. There are many ways that we could try to understand what this means. What does it mean to to say that I've been saved in hope? We saw that the, the world was subjected in hope. It was subjected by God, but even as it was done, so God planted the seed of hope in creation. But what does it mean to say that the believer, as he's been saved from all this, has been saved in hope? Well, it means something like this. It means that... Hope is the arena into which we are saved. Hope is the arena in which we live our lives as Christians. Or, to put it another way, it is the characteristic feature of our salvation. You cannot consider what it means to be saved in the present without uh, considering the grace of hope. The grace of hope is of the very essence of the salvation that we presently enjoy. Why? Because salvation as yet is incomplete. That's been the thought for quite some time in Romans chapter 8. We are saved now only in part. The fullness comes later. So that the salvation which we now enjoy is characterized or conditioned by hope in every sense. It looks forward to that which it does not now enjoy fully. Yes, it enjoys it in part, but not fully. For we were saved, Paul says, in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope for why does one still hope for what he sees? Well, he doesn't see it now, he's looking for it by faith, but he doesn't see it. he's hoping for it, and thus we are we are said to groan within ourselves. notice how Paul states this this grace of hope, uh, this glorious grace of hope, variously he says we we're, we're groan within ourselves, we wait eagerly, and we do so. With perseverance, all of these uh, describe the disposition of hope in the believer. And let us look at each in turn. First, he says, "We groan within ourselves. We who have the first fruits of the spirit, we who are looking for the redemption of the body, the revelation of the sons of God. We who are living in a world that's groaning. Well, we we too are groaning. We're groaning within ourselves. Here's something." You get the same sense in Second Corinthians chapter 5. So here. And let us be honest about it. Let us admit it frankly. This is something we're not happy about. It's something that makes us sorrowful. It's difficult to live in a world like this. It's difficult to live in bodies like this. Bodies that don't work. The world that doesn't work. It's, it, it's a burdensome thing. It's a miserable thing to live in a world and a body that's been cursed by God. These are miseries, we thank God, that are not... Uh, exclusive to ourselves, but which uh, the Lord Himself, Jesus Christ, was subjected in His own humiliation, uh, so that He's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. And yet, that's precisely what it is. It is it is humiliation. It is weakness. And we're not happy about it. We admit it, and so we groan, we sigh, we pant, we long for something better. We long not for a future in this life in which, well, things will suddenly get better. If only, well, if if only they create a, a new treatment or a new medicine, then perhaps my sufferings will end. You see, that's the outlook of the world. That is not what the believer is groaning after. He's not groaning for anything in the present. He's groaning after the world to come. He's groaning after a new heavens and a new earth. He's groaning after a new body, one which is gloriously conformed to the body of Jesus Christ. So that we would not only put it negatively, He's groaning because he's unhappy, but we would put it positively and place the the true emphasis there. Since we have the first fruits of the spirit, we're groaning by way of anticipation for something glorious. Notice how he puts it within ourselves. That isn't true of the creation. The creation is groaning outwardly. It's spewing forth uh, thorns, earthquakes, uh, volcanoes, all sorts of. Uh, of manifestations. But the believer, all of this occurs within the arena of his own heart. It's a secret longing of the heart. The believer doesn't make in this an outward show of his religion. Indeed, he must not. That's the practice of the Pharisees. But he's keenly aware of this dissatisfaction inwardly. He's groaning within. Here's something uh, that's a kind of prayer that God hears, that God's aware of, and the believer is as well. Again, I say the longings of his own heart. So he's also eagerly waiting notice the exact force of this language which he uses first of the world and twice of the believer eager waiting it's the idea of an active principle we don't often think of waiting in that way. When have you ever heard waiting described in this way as as an eager thing it's often something that's passive a man is relaxed he's just waiting he's biding his time that's not what Paul is saying here he's describing an intense active principle. Something which animates his heart. The very thing that makes him groan. Here is a man like creation standing on his tiptoes. He's growing eager for something to happen. He's almost restless until he does. Until it does. Now I, now I would almost say after the characteristic fashion of the world. That he's growing impatient. But I can't say that. You'll see why in a moment. No he's not growing impatient. And yet as he waits he's becoming eager more and more all the time. He knows, he says to himself, that I can never truly be happy, not in the true sense, until I have, until I come to have what I seek. I press on, Paul says, until I obtain it. Not that I already have, but, but I press on. Or the psalmist, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm looking for the Lord's coming more than the watchman for the morning. Yes, more than the watchman for the morning. And And until he comes, I'm looking for it. And with every passing moment... Uh, This sense of anticipation, it it grows more and more and more in my heart. Yes, more than watchmen for the morning. But notice also the element of joy. Now, that isn't stated here explicitly, but in chapter 5, verse 2, the apostle says, uh, and I would argue that everything that he says in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, is a mere summary of what he goes on to expand uh, to the end of chapter 8. Well, look at what he says here, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so we also see, and I think the thought is implied here, that there is the note of joy mixed with hope. So don't hear me say uh, that the believer is unhappy. I didn't just say that, that you might have thought I did. I did not say that the believer is unhappy. I said He's not as happy as he one day will be. Yes, he's unhappy about the body. And he knows that one day he will be truly happy. But don't hear me say that there's no happiness for the present. Because there is. Even as he waits, he rejoices. Why? Because he knows what's coming to him. He knows what's going to happen. He rejoices to think of it. He rejoices in hope of the glory of God. He can't wait for it to happen. And that in itself makes him happy and glad, rejoicing. Rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Then there is also the relation of hope to faith. Do you notice here how hope is described in the same way? These are very similar graces. Hope is contrasted to sight. We are hoping for what we can't see. Well, if we can see it, why are we hoping for it? And yes, hope like faith one day will give way to sight. But for the present we hope. We're saved in hope, he says. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse seven, we read that earlier. We live by faith, not by sight. Or Hebrews chapter eleven, verse one, which relates to these two graces. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Uh, uh, the I can't remember the next word, let me let me read it. Uh, the, uh, the evidence of things not seen, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of not of things not seen. We don't see it now, Paul is saying. Thus we are said to believe, to walk by faith. And faith is the substance or the assurance of things hoped for. Namely, that which we cannot now see. And so hope, as a consequence, looks for that which is believed. Faith believes the promises. Hope looks for them with expectation, having believed them. It does so. The soul looks forward with hope because of what it believes, with the same note of certainty. By faith we are made to hope. It's the consequence or the fruit of, of, of faith. And the hope which is the con- consequence of faith, a true faith, is a joyful, expectant thing. It looks with the anticipation for the things about which it is sure and confident are coming to it. Why? Because it believes them. And so it is said to hope for them. John Owen. <coughs> hope is an earnest expectation arising from faith, trust, and confidence accompanied with longing desire of one day enjoying the reality hoped for. You see, Paul isn't speaking like we sometimes do. I hope it's true when we say that we're really expressing our uncertainty. I remember one time sighing to myself. I thought in a way like Paul was describing here, only now I realize it wasn't. And I've realized it for some time. I remember... uh, For some time, I I remember sitting in my chair in seminary, sighing to myself, saying, I hope it's all true. All this about Christianity, I hope it's true. That's not what Paul is saying. You see, when I said that, I was expressing my uncertainty. I was sighing from a standpoint of unbelief rather than than belief. Paul is saying something very different. He's He's saying the believer, when he's groaning and he's sighing, he's expressing his certainty, his restlessness, his earnest desire to experience one day what he does not experience now. The whole idea of hope as a grace is that which is assured. It's as Owen goes on to say, the fruit of faith, trust, and confidence, it's a glorious grace. Let me go on. If we are engaged in this way, Paul says, if we hope for that which we do not see, then Paul says, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. That's his closing thought. If all this is true, well, then we'll be eagerly waiting for it with perseverance. Another word for this is patience. Patience accompanies the, the eager longing of the believer. That's why you can't say when he's eagerly waiting that he's growing impatient. Well, we're tempted to say that, but we can't say that. No, the believer, uh, the believer is eagerly waiting in a patient manner. He's stable. He's constant. He's immovable. This is a mystery to the natural man, how a man can be eager yet patient. And yet that is what's true of a believer, uh, a mystery which the spirit alone can teach Which the spirit uh, teaches by producing this balance in the believer. An eager patience. Patiently he is content to wait as long as he must. And to suffer whatever he may. And indeed he may wait and suffer a very long time in this life. Who can say when this hope will be realized but even as he waits, so this hope is cherished and strengthened in his heart by the spirit who was given as the first fruit of the future glories. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And so John Owen says, uh, I almost said as a final quote, but I think I have one more even. He says, uh, the special use of hope is to strengthen, comfort, and refresh the soul under all the troubles, weariness, and depressions. Hope does this by giving the soul a firm expectation of a speedy entrance into that glory and an earnest desire for it. The special use of hope is that it strengthens the soul under trials, under discouragements, even as it groans, even as it longs to be rid of the sufferings of the present time. Let me apply this all. All this being true, it clarifies the locus of the believer's hope, what he's longing for. I think I said it already, but let me make it clear again. What is it that he's looking for, longing for, hoping for? What is it uh, that, as he hopes for, strengthens him even in the midst of the worst trials? It is the, the revelation of the sons of God, the redemption of the body. The great thing he's looking for is the coming of Christ on the last day and all that will accompany that. The day of the Lord. It clarifies equally his disposition for the present. His future hope determines his outlook for the present. Clearly, the way Paul is describing the Christian is not in a way uh, that the man is indifferent or resigned. He isn't just passively waiting. He isn't biding his time. He's a man who's engaged. Or as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he's a practical man. His hope for the future in It informs his outlook for the present. He's active. He's engaged. He's looking for the Lord's coming. And as he does so, well, he's watching, Jesus says, Luke chapter 12. When the Lord returns, blessed is the man who is is found waiting, found watching, doing the the master's work. Uh, John puts it like this. He says, uh, he completes the thought. He says, verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. As he looks for the Lord's coming, he's actively engaged in the Lord's work. He's not a passive man, he's not a resigned man, he's active, he's practical. Secondly, this clarifies the sin of impatience, as John Murray puts it. In other words, of expecting too much of this world, things that God never promised. Uh, of, as the theologians sometimes say, of engaging in an overrealized eschatology. We must not look for the things of heaven now, though we hope for them. We must not expect to see them in this world. Uh, This world, if I could put it this way, for the present is hopeless. Uh, The the hope for this world is not to be found in the present age, but in the age to come. Don't grow impatient, beloved, if for now we are made to suffer uh, the sufferings of the present time. If for now it seems that everything, every desire, even of the Christian, is being frustrated and crushed, not only in ourselves, but in society. No, uh, the great mystery here is that's God's plan. But there is a glorious hope, both for this world and for the believer. That's what we should look for. Don't look for things that God never promised. Don't become impatient. Finally, hope cherished in the heart of the believer. Hope is meant to be a thing that we all know, something that we cherish, something that is growing in us. It is the the thing which characterizes our Christianity. It's the thing that characterizes Christianity as a religion. Bart Lloyd-Jones says this. Uh, it's something which is so, uh, excuse me, I started reading too soon. This is what he says. Hope is the measure of true Christianity. Popular Christianity is entirely this worldly. But true Christianity has its eye mainly on the world to come. Now that is an important test for the believer. The question is, do we have that kind of hope? And is that hope one which is growing in us. Owen doesn't think so. Owen thinks, well, he doesn't think it's a common thing. He says the reason men have no more use for and no more benefit from this excellent grace of hope is because they do not continue in thoughts and meditations of the things hoped for. We're not longing for heaven. We're not meditating on the things of heaven. We're not setting our heart and our treasures there. And can a man wonder that he's not hoping for something that he never thinks of? If our minds and our hearts are devoid of thoughts of heaven then we will not be surprised, I think, to find that we are devoid of the grace of hope. Oh, let us think and meditate, as Owen says, and long for the glories of heaven, and to find that the grace of hope is being cherished and is growing in the heart of the believer. Amen. And let us come now to the Lord's table.